Praise God. I'm thankful that I have a hope that maketh not a shame. Hallelujah today in the house of God. My, I feel the Holy Ghost. Let's clap our hands and worship him again. Lord, we thank you and worship you. Praise God. We're thankful that we serve a living God and not a dead God, but a God that is alive. Amen. And is well. And in the house of God today, we feel him in this place. Praise God. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter number 4, verse number 10. Verse 10, 11, and 12. We'll read a few uh, verses here. Mark chapter 4, verse 10, 11, and 12. We're so happy to have all of our guests with us in the house of the Lord today. Amen. We've already acknowledged that, but we acknowledge you again, and we're thankful that you are with us. Mark chapter 4, verse number 10, And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Seems somewhat cryptic. <clears throat> Jesus is talking about parables and, and people seeing but not being able to really see, hearing but not being able to understand, lest they would be converted. Sounds like that's a negative, but it's actually not a negative. It's a response. It's a response of an audience that is listening to the voice of Jesus, and so he talks to them in parables. For a few moments this morning, I want to speak to you about parables and mysteries. Parables and mysteries. This morning we'll talk about parables, and tonight we'll talk about mysteries. Parables and mysteries. I want to not only see, but I want to perceive. I not only want to hear, but I want to understand what God is doing. I don't want it to be hidden from me. I don't want to be imperceptive. But I want to have clarity about the kingdom of God and what God is doing. Lord, we love you and praise you today. We thank you for your blessings and your word and your strength that we find in your word. So we pray that you would direct us today in the house of the Lord. And not just only here, but all over this piece of property today. We give to you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. I have a real quick introduction today. And the introduction is the four points that I want to uh, propose or bring to you today, and that is parables and their function. They're used, Jesus used them often in the New Testament. The opposition that would show up when Jesus would begin to teach, the actual teaching that he would give. What's an example of a parable? And, and how is that illustrated in Jesus' ministry? And then the response of those that would hear that particular teaching. So let's start this morning by talking about parables and their functions. Jesus used them often. They were stories that he would give. A lot of times he would bring things from the actual agriculture, work, occupation, society, work, and culture. He would bring them in, those elements, and he would use those things to reveal a certain truth. And so he used parables and he used stories. Stories, basically a parable, is a story. And they were, despite what Jesus says here in this passage of Scripture, 
They were not meant to hide the message. They were not to keep people from the truth that was in the story that was being told. It was not some kind of cryptic thing that Jesus was trying to hide from people. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Why would he try to hide it from people? He came to minister, not to hide it from them, but to offer to them a hope beyond the condition of their world that they were presently living in. So he wasn't there to hide or obscure, but had everything to do with how you perceive the story. And you perceived the truth. And so he seemed to suggest that these parables contained mysteries for those on the inside, but hardened those on the outside. And because of that saying and because of that understanding, it has caused people in history to look for hidden meanings in these stories. And so they would allegorize some of the elements that were told in the story. And... People look for these, especially in medieval times in history. Augustine offered this interpretation of the Good Samaritan. This was a story about the Good Samaritan. He went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And Augustine said, going from Jerusalem to Jericho, that's Adam. And Jerusalem is the heavenly city of peace from which Adam fell. And Jericho is the moon and signified Adam's mortality. And on his way to uh, Jericho, there were robbers. And he said, that's the devil and his angels. And they stripped him of all of his clothes. And he said, that's, he was stripped of his immortality. And they beat him. That means they persuaded him to sin. And they left him half dead. And as a man, he lives, but he's spiritually dead. And then there was a priest that came by and a Levite that came by. And he said, that's the priesthood and ministry of the Old Testament. Then there was a Samaritan that stopped by that had mercy on him. He said, that's Jesus. And his wounds were bandaged, and that means that the binding and the restraint of sin is because of the wounds and the difficulties that he was in. And there was oil that was put upon him, and that's comfort of good hope. And then there was wine, that's exhortation to work with a fervent spirit. And then there was a donkey that carried him. And the donkey is the flesh of Christ's incarnation. And he was brought to an end, and the end is the church. And the next day, the next day means after the resurrection. And then there were two silver coins. That's the promise of life and life to come. And he met the innkeeper there, and the innkeeper was Paul. Well, <laughs> all of those things have nothing to do with the actual story of the Good Samaritan. But it's trying to find mystery and trying to find hidden meanings in the story when the story was just a story at its face value. So Jesus would present parables, and he would give to them metaphors and similitudes and stories to get his point across to those who were hearing them to bring forth, this is the key, to bring forth a response. Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 10, the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. 
But whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they, seeing not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand, and in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing you shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. So in this passage of scripture, what he is saying is, you can tell somebody something and they can hear what you are saying, but there is no understanding. Have you ever experienced that? You can spend a lot of time with them and you know everything that you are telling them is going in one ear and out the other ear because they are not going to listen to you. Jesus is saying, when I present parables, I'm looking for somebody that is hungry because a lot of the people that are gathering together, they're not hungry to hear what I want to tell them and they're listening, but they're not hearing what I'm saying. They're seeing me, but they're not perceiving what I'm trying to give to them. Praise God. I want to preach to somebody that's hungry to see exactly what Jesus is trying to speak to you. There's going to be a another group that hears preaching and calls it foolishness but to thus those of us who are saved the foolishness of preaching is salvation the word of God is bringing and illuminating things in my heart and mind so I want to receive it I want to be open to it amen I want to understand it they hear it but they don't understand because they have purposed in their heart and their mind that they don't want any more than what is being presented. And this is an obstacle in, in the way of obedience. And so the kingdom becomes a mystery. It becomes a riddle. It becomes a puzzle. They're puzzled. They don't understand it. And so they're trying to pilfer between to figure out what in the world is going on. Amen. They don't get it. They don't understand. And so they're looking, trying to figure out what is the mystery. The mystery is Jesus Christ gave to me a hope that maketh not a shame. The mystery is the kingdom of God is something that I can be involved in. And the world looking at it is going to say that's ridiculous and that is crazy. But I'd like to flip that around and ask you, what in the world does the world provide to you? The world will take everything it can from you. The world will compress you to your very base nature, give to you a lie, market a bunch of sin, and then strip the rug out from underneath you and leave you broken and without anything. But Jesus said, I'll take you from your brokenness. I'll bring healing to you and redemption to you. I'll bring salvation to you. I'll save you from your situation.
Hallelujah. What are you getting out of the world? Addictions. What are you getting out of Jesus? He delivers you from every addiction. Chains that bind you and shackle you can be taken off of you through the power of the Holy Ghost. This is not a mystery. It's the power of Jesus. Hallelujah. Some people are going to look at us and say, you folks are crazy. You don't understand what he richly has done in my life. Where would I be without the mercy of his ability and his strength? I don't know why you're jumping up and down. I don't know why you're running and shouting and dancing. It's because Jesus has done a great thing in my life. going to be those on the outside. They don't get it. They don't understand. But there will be some that say, you know what? I feel something more powerful than any drug that I've been high on. I feel something more powerful than any alcohol I've ever ingested. What is it that I'm feeling? It's the power of the Holy Ghost. It's the power of God's word and ability. God, but for some, it's shrouded in mystery. It's puzzling. (laughs) Why would you do what you're doing? Why would you live the way that you're living? Because I love him to the extent that it's... Shouldn't we expect that? Come on, folks, let's just be honest. If you live for the devil like a devil then why would you come in the church and give God half of what you gave to the devil? Well, if you lived 100% out there in the world when God brought you out of the world and now you're in the church, why would you give God 50% of what you gave the devil 100%? That makes no sense. But if you lived out there 100%, God did something amazing for you and you come to the house of God, the expectation should be I'm going to give you 100% of all of my life. I'm going to commit everything to you. I'm going to give you my heart and my mind and my life. I'm giving you everything. I'm going to serve you in that capacity. It's puzzling for some. For those that were in Jesus' audience, they were looking for a Messiah. They wanted the kingdom of God to be fulfilled. And so they were always projecting how it was going to come and what was going to take place and who was coming. They had this expectation. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, their expectation goes right beyond Jesus. They don't see that Jesus is the one that they're looking for. Part of that had to do with their political understanding of Roman rule and domination. And they expected a Messiah to come. And when the Messiah would come, he would set things right. And he would overthrow the Roman rule. And he would give the nation and the land back to Israel. And he would be the Messiah. And they're still looking for that today. Still looking for that today. Is the Messiah. He is God manifested in the flesh to them, and He is providing truth to them of the kingdom. But because their thinking and their understanding is, it surely can't be this carpenter's son. We know who He is, and He's trying to tell us things 
And, and so they saw him, but they didn't perceive anything. They heard him, but they didn't understand anything because their reception was wrapped up and based on a Messiah that they were looking for when the Messiah was in front of them, talking to them. And so this, become, this became a problem. And so Jesus said, because I can understand that they're coming with this kind of mentality, I'm going to reveal the kingdom in parables to where it's puzzling to them and they can't understand it. But for those that want to be saved, it will be very, very understandable to them. I'm going to present. You know, <clears throat> sometimes you have to let Jesus be the author and finisher of your faith. This was a puzzle to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes that listened to Jesus because they were wanting to control the narrative. And Jesus is giving to them stuff, and he is the author and the finisher and the creator. And he is writing some things in their life of destiny, but they want to control the pen. And so this is the reason why there was a disconnect and there was no understanding and there was confusion. And Jesus used parables to give the message to those that really wanted to understand it. And yet at the same time, obscure those that were only looking for a, a fight and an opposition and a battle and a struggle. I just want to insert something modern here for you. You got to let Jesus be the author of your life. You got to put down, at some point, there has to be a transaction where you say, okay, I'm, I've been writing a lot of things in my life, but it's time for me to turn over the pen. <laughs> Praise God. Things that I've listed out here, goals that I had set, things that I thought were important, uh, the expectation that I had, um, my, my pen writing and my authorship came to fail, and it took me in a lot of different directions and ways I would not have gone, but here we are. At some point, you have to give Jesus the pen, and he's the one that is, should be writing the details of your life. Praise God. You can't control everything, but you know the author and finisher of your faith. Jesus is the author and finisher of your faith, and he can give to you a story of destiny and purpose and power and a anointing. Thank God it's not up to me because when I do things I make a mess out of it. But when Jesus takes something, he's like the potter and he has power over the clay and he's able to form a vessel unto honor and function and worthiness. When I put my hands on it, I make a mess out of it. But when Jesus takes the mess, Jesus is able to do something that I could not do with my own talents and with my own abilities. You need to bring your difficulties and struggles and problems and say I'm looking for the potter who has power over the clay that is able to mold and shape my life into something that is of value. So that's what a parable is for. So whenever you're reading the scripture you come across parables and you wonder why is this? And the disciples sometimes had a struggle understanding that as well. That was the function of the parable. The parable is to reveal a truth because there is opposition, that's the next point, because there is opposition that always comes that overlooks what Jesus is saying, then he tells stories so that the hungry can hear, but those who are disinterested and only wanting opposition, it will pass them right on by. 
Anybody hungry in the house of God today? I assume you came to this place because you're hungry for a move of God's spirit and his anointing. So whenever Jesus would provide a story, a story, a parable, there would be opposition. It wasn't to conceal. It was to bring forth a response. Those that were coming to oppose him did not understand, not because they couldn't figure it out, but because they didn't want to accept the direction the teaching would take them. They didn't want to accept the direction that the teaching was going to take them. And so they were obstinate and there was opposition. So in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 2 and the rest of Luke chapter 15, there is several parables. And it is set up by stating to us that then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. That's a low strata, publicans and sinners. And verse number two says, And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. <clears throat> Opposition. Jesus getting ready to tell a story that has truth in it, powerful truth in it, and he's telling the story to the very lowest of the low. And here comes the opposition. The opposition are the Pharisees and the scribes. Who, first of all, let's, that's two groups. Who's the publicans and the sinners that Jesus is talking to? Well, the publican is the tax collector. And the tax collector was taking taxes on behalf of the Romans and he was a contractor. It was a certain class of occupation who undertook state contracts of various kinds. And their work included the collection of tithes and various indirect taxes. As you can imagine, in the first century, along with the 21st century, that system was very open to abuse and the publicans seem to have been prone to extortion and malpractice. So they were detested. They were considered vulgar on account of the hatred they accord. For the strict Jew, this was a natural attitude because they were aggravated that the tax collectors were unclean because they were constantly changing hands of money with Gentiles. They were unclean and they worked on the Sabbath, which was a violation. So because of their uncleanness, nobody should eat with tax collectors. And nobody should associate with sinners. And therefore, they were a hated group. So Jesus, they were the lowest of the lowest, and Jesus was interacting with them. And so the scribes and Pharisees murmured, who are these people? And who is this man that associates with the lowest of the low? Praise God. You can't get too low for Jesus. I know there'll be opposition to that, but listen, you can't get too low for Jesus. Well, I don't know if God would forgive me because I've done horrible things. Stop it. Stop 
Stop having a, I've heard that. Stop having a pity party for yourself because of the stupidity that you have done in your life. And you think the God that created you and died for you can't pull you and save you out of your situation. Yes, he can. That's an excuse. There is no sin that is so great that Jesus can't solve. Calvary solved every ugly, vulgar sin that you could ever commit because there is power in the blood of Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've been raised in the church. It doesn't matter if you've been in prison. It doesn't matter what situations have arisen in your life. There is a God that can reach to the very bottom of the pit and pull you out of that mire and muck that you are in. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, that man has testimony. So what I just said there apparently resonated enough for him to do a circle and walk all the way up front here to say amen because God has done great things in his life. Praise God. It's not just him. It's all of us in this building. Praise God. God is able to reach anybody from anything. And so there's opposition. He's talking to the lowest of the lowest, the tax collector, the unclean person that works with the Gentiles. That has manipulated and has become a byword among so many. And it also says sinners. So who's that? Well, that would be the prostitutes. That would be the outcast. That would be the addicted, that would be you, and that would be me, that would be all of us. Because Jesus doesn't go to the wealthy just to the wealthy, he reaches to the bottom. He doesn't go to people that have it all together. He goes to people that their lives are upside down and a mess. And he ministers to them. And so the opposition comes. Now, who's the opposition? Well, it says it's the Pharisees. And the scribes. Well, who are the Pharisees and the scribes? Because in the Old Testament, we don't get any understanding of Pharisees and the scribes, which is a good point because from the end of the Old Testament into the New Testament, you have 400 years of silence. There's no prophet. The Old Testament has closed. The Jews have been scattered. And so there is a religious group that rises up called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are a political and religious party in the New Testament. All of a sudden, when the Old Testament opens and Jesus is preaching, the Pharisees are all of a sudden there. And they're always in opposition. They are a group of people with a body called the Sanhedrin that is the supreme court and legislative body of the Jews and they have a very strong commitment to observing the law of God as it is interpreted and applied by the scribes. Now stop and think about this for a minute. I know this is a little bit of historical and what have you. Stop and think about this. If 
the Old Testament closes with a prophet's voice, and there is no prophet. Until John the Baptist, there is no prophet, there is no voice because of Israel's hardness of heart and, and reception. Then what happens is there is a group that goes back into the scripture, the scribes, and start interpreting it with a razor-sharp focus and edge that takes all the spirit out of it and puts all the legalism in it because that's all they have. So the authority of Scripture to them is to deep dive into it and try to figure out every part. And so the scribes would try to figure this out, and then the religious body would take this on, and they would make determinations as to what does it actually mean to work on the Sabbath if you're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath, then what does that mean? The Old Testament just says it's a day of rest and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but it's kind of general, it's open. But during these 400 years when your focus is so much on Scripture, this group of scholars starts trying to figure out every iota. If you take something from point A to point B, is that considered work? And if it's work and it's the Sabbath, what do you do? Can you move animals around? Are you What exactly does it mean to rest? And they became so hypersensitive to this, especially on the ceremonial laws and the purity laws and all of, all of this kind of stuff, that their mentality and their thinking was so stringent and so legalistic that they could not see anything but that. And here Jesus comes along, and what is he doing on the Sabbath? He's healing people. And they're upset because he's healing somebody. Their mentality has gotten to the point where they can't even appreciate the fact that Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath because he's violating something. He's violating the religious laws. And so they're upset with him because of that, because their mentality has been so super and hyper-focused and sensitive on the commandments of tithing and ritual purity and everything else. And they have antagonistically set themselves up against Jesus in opposition when Jesus is trying to present something. They should have been rejoicing when the man picked up his his bed and he walked they should have been magnifying God when he was lowered down through the ceiling and Jesus said I'm going to forgive you of your sins now take up your bed and walk and instead they were in opposition to revival that was taking place they didn't like it because they were so focused on details I want to preach to you here today we need to make sure that when Jesus is in the house Jesus becomes everything in the house he becomes our focus. We recognize what he's doing. Hallelujah. So the opposition was there. Now, the teaching. All right, so what have we done? We've talked about parables. Everybody okay this morning? <laughs> we talked about parables and stories and how they function and what they mean. Then we talked about the opposition that came to Jesus that was constantly in confrontation with him. And now... We're going to give you an example of the teaching. This is in Luke chapter 15. So the sinners are there, the publicans are there, the Pharisees are there. And here's what Jesus speaks, verse 3. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, he speaks three parables. What man of you having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? 
And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Now that seems kind of unfair, right? There's ninety nine people that are faithful. Ninety nine. 
What is he doing? He's telling a story. The story is a parable, which there's truth in it, but people that are listening, that are in opposition, it's going to go right over their head. They're not going to receive it. They're not going to see it. It's a mystery to them. So he's telling this. There's a sheep that gets lost. There's a coin that gets lost. There's a prodigal son that gets lost. When he comes back, his father receives him and accepts him. And there is celebration and music is happening. And the older brother, the older brother has been working out in the field. Man, there's so much good stuff in there. The old brother... The older brother, he's been doing his job, he's been faithful, he's been coming to the house, he's been doing all the things that he's supposed to do, and he hears this celebration, and he's like, what is going on? And so when he gets there, he says, what's going on? And they said, your brother, the prodigal son, the one that was lost, he's coming home, and we're celebrating and worshiping, we've killed the cat in fact, we got music, people are dancing, it's a great time, he's upset and he's angry. He's upset, and he says to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, prostitutes, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. He's upset, and he is angry. We better be very, very careful. This is a parable. I'm getting ready to tell you some of the, the reasons for the parable. But we better be very, very careful that we never get in the position or the place of the older brother that, that looks with distaste when the prodigal son comes back. If somebody comes back and repents at this altar, I'm going to rejoice and thank God because it is a miraculous thing. I don't want to keep people out of the altars. Come on, you had your opportunity. Get away, get away. No, I want them to come to the house of God. Praise God. I want God to do great things in their life and to write things in their life. I want to celebrate with what God is doing. Hallelujah. Let's not be jaded, church. Sometimes we can get jaded. Ah, there they come again. How many times have they been in the altar? You never know when it might be just one time that is a turning point in their life and God does marvelous things. How about we focus on that rather than focusing on how many times they've come, how many times they've prayed, how many times they're in and they're out. You know what? I'm going to keep serving God, keep worshiping God. I'm going to keep this place an environment where the Holy Ghost can break out and anybody that wants to come, we're going to celebrate because of God's goodness. I'm not getting jaded because I've been here and they haven't been here. I'm thankful that I'm here. I don't want to be where they are. They think they're having fun. They're not having fun. They're miserable. But in the house of God, we've got the mercy of God and the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God and the blessing of God. Why would we charge somebody else when God has been so good to us? We need to thank God that God's blessed us and he's been good to us. Praise God. I want our altars to be full. I want this place to be filled with people coming back. Do you believe that? I want sinners in the building. I want prodigals in the building. I want indifferent and hard-hearted people. I want God to break through to them. I want the Holy Ghost to move. Praise God. If you're standing, stay standing. I 
I just saw an old saint of God. It took her a long time to get up based on what I just said. But she made it up. And it was a lot of effort. I watched her. See, sometimes when you're preaching, you don't want to see some things. I don't want to see you yawning. That's just man. Either they're tired or they're so bored that uh, I don't want to see that. But sometimes you look out and you see something and it just, boom, strikes you. It took a saint of God a long time to get up. <laughs> to get up. You know why? Because a lot of people could have judged her back in the day about her past and her experience and all of her stuff. But God was merciful to her and there's a church that loves her. It took her a long time. God to get up and stand but I want it to be worth her while praise God it took you a long time to get up sis but thank God for God's mercy on your life and thank God there was a group of people that wanted to celebrate when you came home hallelujah come on your sons and your daughters and people connected to you that may be disconnected now when they come back to the house of God and God forgives them every single one of us are going to celebrate and worship and be excited because of what God God has richly done in your family just like it was meant in my family. Praise God. Let's clap our hands and thank the Lord together. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. Amen. You can be seated. I need to finish this. The musicians, you can... You can come and you can, uh, you can start with what you sang right before preaching. <clears throat> um, there's the lost sheep. The implications there is that God loves the sinner and repentance. I can see that. But the crowd that was there in opposition couldn't figure it out. What is he talking about? The lost coin, the woman with the ten pieces of silver. The implication is that God loves the sinner and repentance. And then the lost son. The elder son arrives. He's angry. He becomes an obstacle to the heart of the father. And this is the main thrust of the parable. Because the Pharisees represent the older brother. <laughs> This is a parable that Jesus is giving, and he's speaking directly to them, and he's setting up a character <coughs> that is a mirror to themselves, <coughs> and they can't see it. The father, the prodigal, and the older brother. This is a story of God, who is the father of all things, and Israel, the prodigal. Israel in the Old Testament, what does Israel do all the time? What do they do? If you've read the Old Testament, what do they do? <clears throat> they constantly leave home, don't they? It's always a struggle. They constantly leave home. And what do they do? They start worshiping idols and idolatry. One particular case in Ezekiel, they're described as going after two sisters that were known harlots and prostitutes. This is Israel leaving God. So God's there, the prodigal is Israel, and the older brother 
his Pharisees. So Jesus is laying out a picture for them. I am come to reach out to the prodigal, which is Israel, and by implication of Israel, the entire world. But the Pharisees are in opposition to what God is doing, and they want to be obstacles to the will of God. They can't see it. They can't understand it. It's beyond their comprehension. And this is the main thrust. So the last part of this is what is the response? Though they were with the Father, they thought they were well aware of God's work. They were obstructing or fighting against what the Father desired to do. Luke chapter 5 and verse 31, Jesus answered and said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. <clears throat> Luke chapter 19 verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know what Jesus is doing? He's reaching. He's reaching. He's trying to seek and he's trying to save. And there's always going to be some opposition to that. As a matter of fact, even in his own disciples, Judas tried to be an obstruction. Even Peter turned on him and rebuked him. Jesus called him Satan and said, get thee behind me. When something, this is my whole point here today, okay? All of that. The parables, their function. Um, the opposition. The response. The whole point here today is that when something gets in the way of the will of God, it is like the older brother that's upset. And the older brother squashes faith, ruins joy. Tries to stigmatize the celebration. Sits back when there is a, a move of God's will and visibility. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but it's long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's, let's never be an obstacle. Let's never be the older brother when God is trying to present his will, which is to have mercy on people, which is to bring healing, which is to bring redemption and salvation. Let's never get in the way when God is trying to minister. Praise God. In this house today, God wills his mercy. God wills healing, physical and emotional. God wills forgiveness. God wills redemption. I don't want to ever stand in the way. I don't ever want to be an older brother as we stand to our feet here today in the house of God. Praise God. I feel the will of God is in this place here. <clears throat> I feel there is a Savior that is bringing salvation and healing and strength. Amen. And his will is that not any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. The will of God is in this place to bring healing to you and strength to you and anointing to you. And it's here in this house today. As they step forward and they begin to sing, I wonder if you could lift up your hands and say, God, I want the will of God.
This is Julio. Julio's been here three times. His wife is in the hospital. He has stepped forward today so that we would pray for her. Amen. We're going to pray for you, Julio, and pray that that extends to her, okay? Praise God. in this place today. You know why? Because God wills some things. It's always going to be obstructions and there's always going to be opposition. Hallelujah. We're going to trust God together today that God is greater than any obstacles. Greater than any obstruction. Hallelujah. Why don't we lift up our voice together? I thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Let the Holy Ghost. 
not doing as well. Brother David is still struggling with some back uh, issues and problems. If you're praying about something here today, amen. It might be an unspoken request. Would you lift your hands? Amen. All of us today are praying about things, situations, people. Praise God. You feel the anointing I feel today? There's a sweet presence of God in this place. Hallelujah. Let's join together and pray together. Lord, I thank you and praise you and worship you. You see every need and every petition that is in this place today. We pray for your anointing and your hand to touch. If it's a person, praise God. I pray that you bring healing and anointing and strength and salvation. You're a God that reaches in our minds. We may say they're too far gone or they're so far, but your word says that you call those who are afar off. I pray that you touch them. In Jesus' name. Situations, if it's situations. It seems like there's no way. You're a God that works in the impossibilities. Praise God. We thank you, we worship you, we rest in your ability and your strength. And we speak your name because we know your power and your anointing is there. I pray that you go to hospitals and what we feel in this place goes to a hospital room that a turning point happens right now, right now, right now, in Jesus' name. Praise God. Hallelujah. We ask all these things, Lord, in your great name. we thank you and praise you. We give you praise and we thank you for every victory. Amen. Everything that you accomplish, we acknowledge that and we give to you praise. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. Look around you. There's somebody close by you. Tell them it was good to see them in the house of the Lord today. We will be back tonight for a celebration service. Begins at 5.30 for prayer, 6 o'clock service tonight. We are baptizing somebody in Jesus' name tonight. Haley, we're baptizing Haley tonight.